0: welcome to the radio plasma podcast a space dedicated to the exchange of ideas conversations stories music performances and randomness listen at radioplasma.com also we are on apple podcast google play tune in and stitcher i'm your producer and host johan Rashi vega and i'm honored to welcome today tahira amatul wadud she is the candidate for the first congressional district of massachusetts and also someone who I admire and respect a lot. So it's an honor and a privilege to hear to have you here today. Good morning and thank you.
1: Thank you, Johan. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate all the work that you do and are doing in the community. And it's a pleasure to be here with you this morning.
0: So you are running for the first congressional district of Massachusetts. Yes. First time doing (laughs) something like this, but You are so familiar with many of the issues, which I believe that's the reason why you decided to take this mission upon yourself. So let's start with uh, knowing a little bit about you. We know that you have a legal practice, that you are a lawyer and that you are a volunteer and so well involved with the community. You have been pretty much all your life. Yes. Let's start with that.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I was born in in New York in Queens and then lived in East New York in Brooklyn until I was about nine. And then we moved here to Springfield. And so I've lived in Springfield ever since that point and right in the inner city of Springfield. So I grew up quite connected to a diverse community and have served my community in ways I didn't know about until I took stock as I began thinking about the needs of the community post the Donald Trump election. And doing a lot of self-reflection, I looked back and I said, my goodness, this is what I've been doing and this is what our community deserves and needs is the experience that I, that I have. And so it's been very, very exciting. We launched December 19th And it's the end of May, and it's just (laughs) been flying by, but with so much success.
0: September is coming pretty quick.
1: Yeah, the the primary election is September 4th, the day after Labor Day. When
0: or what exactly made you take this decision of saying, I am running?
1: Yeah. When I was 17, I lived um, on Central Street in Springfield, which is kind of in the Maple High, Six Corners section of Springfield. And two little boys who lived in the building or at a house behind us, they were four and six years old. They were snatched up off the street heading to the store by a man who brought them into an abandoned abandoned building across the street at 336 Central Street and brutalized them and left them for dead. Those two little boys were friends of my little sister's. And it was devastating to our family, devastating to the community, and of course, devastating to the boys. They ended up recovering, healing, and moved back down south with family. But that moment triggered in me something that I think was a little organic to that moment, which was, why do we have a death trap in our building, and our neighborhood, why do we have a death trap of a building in our neighborhood, and why is it okay? For black and brown people to live around blight and elected officials do nothing. And I sat there and with the adults in my life held protests and rallies in front of the building and pressured the city to to demolish it, and eventually it did. And then I would go on to law school and have children, and I had kids young, and then would work, and do. I would just go ahead and live my life, but always with an eye for serving the community, and always with an eye for wondering why certain people were boxed out or excluded from having the best that they should be given. And so post the Donald Trump election, you you heard and you know because you're in the community and you're active, you hear people wondering what their futures are going to look like and what they can do to help shape their futures. Regardless of what party they're on, where they're from, universally, people wanted a say in what and where we were going. And here in Western Massachusetts, I was just hearing lots of um, hopelessness from people who felt like the representative from the first district may not have been responding with the level of urgency and reassurance that they deserved. So in the work that I've done as a lawyer over the past almost 12 years, um, the work that I've done as a mother and a community member has really led me to know how to lead and how to serve. And when I laid everything out on the table and talked to my family about what we can do to save our community, running for Congress was the way to have the most immediate impact and the most significant impact right now. And I'm not wrong. It's playing out more wonderfully than I could have ever imagined.
0: So how do you feel seeing the support and the response from the community after you made official that you are running?
1: Yeah. I sometimes tell people that initially after the launch, we did a three-town tour in our launch. We launched in the morning in Shelburne Falls, a community that had complained that they didn't feel that they had the attention of the representative. And then we moved over to Pittsfield at lunchtime, and did the same and announced, and we came back home to Springfield in Hamden County and wrapped up the three launch tour. And the amount of attention and enthusiasm for my entry into the race, frankly, overwhelmed me to the point where I had insomnia for about three nights. I could not process what to do with this, which I viewed as a hopeful obligation that I had now to win and to succeed. And winning takes takes form in many different ways. But I was uh, insomniac, an insomniac for a couple of nights trying to figure out how I would process that. And in those hours of sleeplessness, I figured out how to process that. And that's what you see the beautiful glow in Western Massachusetts of hopefulness and excitement around the spirit of what democracy looks like when people know that they have a choice as to who will serve them in the House of Representatives come the fall. And it's wonderful.
0: So being in different communities, what are the common issues and the common problems that you identified?
1: Yeah. So the one issue that people actually often cheer when they hear me talk about is the, the support for Medicare for All or some form of a universal health care plan. And I, I, it surprises me sometimes but it also um, affirms that I'm on the right track with leading with that as a priority. As you know, Massachusetts led the way in a form of a universal health care plan under Governor Romney, who then, Deval Patrick, implemented the program. So we've had it here in Massachusetts, some form of knowing that the children will be covered by health insurance, poor people will be covered by health insurance, unemployed, temporarily unemployed folks would have it. And so for us... It's not new, this conversation. But what is new is the concern and the fear that it could be elusive. And so the people want to make sure that we have an all-hands-on-deck approach to this, making sure that the Massachusetts legislature is looking at a single-payer health plan. But also, and where I come in, is that the congressional um, delegation understands that this is a priority not just for Massachusetts, but for the American people. So people love that. Some of the other issues you can imagine are universal issues. People want an opportunity. They want to be able to achieve the American dream, prosperity. And that sounds so corny, but we know that for different people, there are barriers to that prosperity that others don't either know or care about or talk about? And how do we remove barriers to prosperity? As a lawyer, as a mom, as a woman who's grown up in the inner city communities and has worked in some of the largest corporations in the area, I have this vantage point and this lens to understand from a 360 degree angle why and how we have to disrupt systems of oppression and barriers to greatness. And the truth is that I hear those themes no matter where I go in this district. This district is 87 cities and towns. It is all of Hamden County, all of Berkshire County, part of Franklin County, part of Hampshire, and a few towns in Worcester County. And people just want an opportunity. They want access. They want a promise of a good future for their children. And I get it. And I'm going to work hard to be the public servant who works to deliver it.
0: In your campaign, you talk about five important points. Uh, one of them, you just mentioned that the universal healthcare system, also access to education. Yeah. Ways to also work around civil rights, yeah. including gun control. Mm-hmm the prison to, the school to prison pipeline. Yes. The opioid crisis. But there was one in particular that got my attention because this is something so important that not so many people even realize of it. When you talk about religious literacy.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I'm fortunate because between 2013 up through about 2017, I've had the opportunity to be representing Muslim communities and doing a lot of public speaking on Islam, as well as other faiths. What do Muslims believe? How does that comport with what Jews believe and Christians believe? And let's talk about policies that disproportionately impact Muslims or immigrants or people who are mistaken for Muslims or immigrants and people's concerns and misconceptions around that. So I've been doing these talks and they've, they vary, but One is, I call it a hot topics talk, and I don't get to do it as much from the campaign trail, but what I do is I take policies that most people don't know exist, And I examine them through the lens of their impact on black and brown folks. And I say to people when I start that conversation, Oh, I'm going to blow your mind with this. And usually by the end of the talk, it blows their minds because there are so many rules that our country has and so many policies that we have that are really disproportionately impacting marginalized communities. And the only folks who know that it's happening are marginalized folks. And when we talk about barriers to prosperity, some of those policies are them whether it's the heavy surveillance in black and brown and Muslim communities or whether it's a militarization of the police force and law enforcement that impacts our black and brown and poor communities and also impacts law enforcement who do not want to have an over militarization of a police force for a civilian community so these are really complicated issues that are remarkably significant and important in our communities so when we talk about religious literacy, one of the things that I try to do is fill the gaps of myths, by being clear to describe what Muslims believe, what Muslims do not believe, and sort of what I call making our world smaller because there are more commonalities between the Abrahamic faiths, which are Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, than there are um, differences. And I love talking about that. There's a statistic that suggests that 60% of Americans don't know a Muslim. And so when you have this uh, sort of um, mystery about who a person is, myths can take over and create an image in your mind about who that person is that really is inaccurate. So that's, it's really important for us to get caught up and up to speed on, on our neighbors and who they are.
0: And working with civil rights is no surprising to see how unfortunately the affiliation or being of a specific religion It also connects with racism, classism, and sadly with the circumstances that we have in our times with the ways of the government has been infusing in people the entitlement. It's really difficult sometimes to even think about the conversations to have, seeing Mm -hmm. how many things are happening every day. How do you feel being able to bring these conversations to the table?
1: I'm I'm so absolutely blessed. And I've been given so many gifts. I was born into a Christian family. My parents became Muslim when I was four years old. So I've always grown up knowing the church, my grandparents' love of the church, my grandparents' respect for the church and their respect for my parents' decision to become Muslim, and from my parents' respect for their parents and cousins and brothers and sisters to continue to practice in their Christian faith. That wouldn't be something that I really consciously thought about until more into adulthood when we started talking about religious literacy. And I'd be sitting talking with people who were very well-educated who didn't know that Muslims believe in Abraham. And I'd say, wow, okay, there's a gap. And so what I have been given the gift of is not only lived experience in these worlds, but also the benefit of higher levels of education. And I feel like I have agency now to speak not only as an expert because I've studied and worked in these realms, but also because I've lived these experiences. And so, if there's anybody uniquely qualified to be able to navigate these spaces and the very diverse spaces that require um, advocacy and voice, particularly in the first district, I am that person. I am uniquely qualified and in touch enough to do it, and to do it effectively and respectfully. I also have friends, like friends and family members from all walks of life, from all backgrounds, and so they're my advisory team. So when I have an issue where I may feel like I need to touch base with someone because that issue might be closer to their lived experience, I have that person. And that's how we're developing policy, that's how I understand, that's how I learn, and that is how... I will be able to serve the people of the first district well.
0: Of course, you have mentioned it already, the representation of communities that have felt not being heard, not being taken in consideration for their needs. And this is so important to keep always the inclusiveness and the diversity
1: on the perspective in the House. That's right. That's right. And it's funny because uh, I think our minds uh, sort of go to the default of poor communities may not be heard, black and brown communities may not be heard. But when I go around the district, rural communities don't always feel heard. Working class families don't always feel heard. Wealthy families don't always feel heard. And so I'm saying to myself after all these months, well, who's heard? Oh, it's the elite who are being heard. It's the elite for whom policies are being created. But this is a working class community. This And our problems and our goals are the opposite sides of the same coin. So no matter whether I'm in the furthest part of the district or right here at home, these people have the same hopes and goals that you have for yourself and your family and that I have for myself and and their family and that someone out in the urban and, and suburban and rural areas has for themselves and their family and that the barriers that are keeping us from achieving our greatness are just different but the source is the same and that is lack of access and lack of representation.
0: At this point we could consider you are in the middle right now of the yeah. campaign. <laughs> yes. How do you feel in terms of achieving this victory come September 4th?
1: You know, when I launched people some I got all these emails like great like people giving me encouragement. But sometimes I'd have to say, well, what kind of encouragement was that? Like Somebody said, it's like going up a hill on ice. That's what you're trying to do. <laughs> and, you know, everybody's a pundit, too. The other thing is everybody has, wants to engage in some punditry. But I've heard a lot of times, oh, this is hard. What you're doing is really hard. So I am confident that we can win and that we will win. So at the outset. And I'm excited for what the future holds post-September 4th because this is a primary. We live or die in the primary. Then we have a general election, which will be important, but right now the primary is the most important. So how do I feel about it? I feel very optimistic. The other thing I feel is that we're already winning. We've gotten into this race and we are waking people up. I see people smiling and happy to talk about politics who haven't been smiling and happy for two years, and that is not an exaggeration. I have little boys and girls telling me they've seen me in a newspaper, and they're excited because their skin color might look like mine, or it might not. And they're still happy to see that somebody who's different or unique the way that I am is achieving what what I'm achieving. And what are we achieving? We're achieving amplification. We're getting attention. And so what's happening? We're already winning because people want to talk to me about being in the race. They want to talk to me about the state of the district. And I tell it, anytime I get a microphone in front of me, I'm talking about the issues impacting the men, women, and children in our community in a way that nobody has done Probably in forever, so we're already winning. You can feel it in the air here in the first congressional district.
0: And another thing that you keep doing is to empower young girls.
1: I'm trying
0: to be the best. Yes, and to inspire them through your own work and yes. through your own experiences, yes. which is another another way to set an example. That's right, and inspire a new generation to get involved in their communities.
1: That's right. That's right. And what do I say? I expect magnificence from our youth, and I expect adults to do like what you're doing, and that is to create an environment for them to shine, for them to glow. Um, I have a number of youth interns on my team and they attend conferences. They go with me to meetings. They sit in phone calls. They coach me before I do interviews like this. Um, so they, I trust them because this is their future that I'm helping to shape, and I let them know. So these are people who just graduated high school and college, and I have a lot of recent college graduates who are on the team as well because I believe in them, and I believe that this is a trust that I hold in running. And I want them to have a say in it. And this is how I feel about all of our children here in the district. This is their party. This is their life.
0: (laughs) As a mother, as a head of family, how do you keep this balance by still being a lawyer, running for Congress, and still being committed to your family?
1: Totally. You know, I have seven kids. Yes. The oldest one is 24. I have a 20-year-old, 16, 11, 9, 7, and 4-year-old. And I'm really lucky. My husband is very good. My parents are really great. And the older kids are very helpful. So in terms of the balance of making sure the kids get to soccer and get to their games and get to swim, um, it's it takes a village. And the kids are really committed to helping each other out. And so is our family. And so is the community. We have coaches who rolled up their sleeves and said, you're doing important work. We'll get the kids back and forth. So in terms of the children, I feel that they are secure and they're confident. The other thing is I take them on a campaign trail with, me often. If I tell people that they're my motivation for running and that their peers in this community are my motivation and people need to see them. And so the kids are starting to learn the district and they know how to shake hands with people. They know how to hand out palm cards and flyers. And they also get to meet other kids on the campaign trail. And if I said that we're going to unite this community, I have to walk the walk. And that means I bring my children into the community As ambassadors for what I'm doing and what our family is doing, Um, regarding my case, my cases in practice in law, I'm still practicing, but I've reduced my caseload quite significantly. I just don't have the brain power to be able to do it. But I love being in court; it keeps me sharp and fresh. And I'll do that um, for as long as I as I possibly can. And the campaign has so much of my attention, and is given so much priority because, of course, it is the most important way that I'm going to serve my family and the community. And so it's getting it's getting everything. We're feeding everything to the campaign.
0: <laughs> Let's open up the space for, for you to talk and address the public about your campaign. Yes. So you can um, let everybody know your mission and what are the priorities uh, yeah. that you plan to work on in Congress?
1: So the Tahira for Congress campaign, and you can find it across all social media platforms and tahiraforcongress.com, is really a campaign to take care of the needs of the families in wor- Western Massachusetts to give voice and life to our ideas, our goals, and our our visions and our hopes to secure our future, our primary platform issues, as you mentioned earlier, is to support a Medicare for All program that is important. As a divorce lawyer, I got to see and see firsthand the significance and the dependence on families to make sure that their kids are covered by insurance, that an ex spouse is covered by insurance, that an unemployed adult has insurance options of what it's like for people to have become chronically ill and not know if they can afford to be sick, but even worse, whether they can afford to get well. That is a question that people shouldn't have to grapple with anymore. Come on, it's 2018. The other thing that's impacting our communities is the issue of addiction. And I often talk about it and say the opioid crisis. But really, it's an addiction issue, but it is far beyond just opioids. We have a crack cocaine crisis. We have a heroin crisis. We have, um, we have addiction across the board. And what we also have is disparity in how it's treated. When addiction manifests itself in, in certain bodies and in certain neighborhoods, it's looked at and treated one way. And when it manifests itself in other bodies and other neighborhoods, it's looked at and treated another way. If we actually had a model for how we dealt with addiction when the crack cocaine epidemic was off the wall and I was a kid, and that was just about when we moved here in the 80s. If we had a model for how we dealt with that from a clinical and compassionate point of view, We may not have the modern-day opioid crisis that we have, and if we did, we'd have a model for how to deal with it. So that is an element of criminal justice reform because, in my opinion, and in policy that I will support, we will move away from a punitive model, and we will adopt a clinical and compassionate model, and we will also be very aggressive at dealing with disparity, which the disparity is, of course, racism and classism. And until we're having that heart-to-heart talk, guess what? We're not solving it. We simply are not solving it. Infrastructure is also big here in the district. And I live in Springfield. My office is in Chicopee. But when I think about infrastructure and where we're really having some gaps, and it's, there's, there are a lot of pockets of it, um, I'm going to tell you something that a lot of folks may not necessarily be able to relate to. And that's a gap in access to high-speed internet. There are so many communities, particularly in the Franklin County and Hampshire County um, aspects of the district, where the students go to school and they go home and there's no there's no Internet. There's no Internet. I'm not talking about as a bad signal. I'm talking about there's no Internet. So teachers cannot give their kids homework projects. Employees cannot work from home. Businesses will not develop and build. And the price and the values of homes really fluctuate based on what's, what street you live on. And when we wonder why some people have barriers to prosperity, it's because in the 20 years that everybody else has had internet, the rural communities and the poor communities have really fallen behind, and it's unacceptable. I took an intro to internet in 1998 when I was graduating Elms College. It's 2018, no kid should be leaving their internet-free communities to start school and have to learn how to use a tool and how to also use the tool, the computer, um, how to use the internet. It, it's, it's unimaginable, it's unfair. And it's an issue and a conversation around elitism and how people who say they feel like they haven't been represented truly haven't been. On the flip side of that, we have communities, uh, urban communities and inner city communities and suburban communities where we have access to internet without a problem, but that it's unaffordable and becomes cost prohibitive. So what are our students doing? They're using our wonderful public library systems to do their homework, but guess what? I have a bunch of kids. If there's a barrier to getting that homework done, the idea that they now have to leave the house and go during certain hours is yet another systemic barrier to their success. And if nobody is talking about it, we're not going to be able to fix it. And we're not going to be able to save our children's futures and their lives. So those are some of the issues that when I start talking about them that way, something in that platform resonates with everyone.
0: Thinking about The internet access, how much of this, sometimes people will think, oh, come on, there's internet everywhere. No,
1: it's not. It's really not. Yeah. I mean, I've been driving the district and you know how many times I'll get, I'll hit a dead zone with the phone Mm -hmm. and where it becomes um, a point where I might get panicky is if I'm going maybe from one appointment to another and the lack of internet access means I can't find my way. So if families, I I had a, a gentleman tell me the other day that he had to reset a password on something he was using. And now, you know, they want to send the code to your phone. But if he doesn't have Internet access or is not a code, uh, a place where he can get a signal, he's driving his car. He's going to the local market to catch a signal, to get the code off his phone, to come back home and to log on to his bank account. <laughs> Because the rest of the world is so heavily dependent upon the access to it. So you're right. Like these these are the things that mm-hmm. impact people's quality of life and add stress where there really doesn't need to be stress.
0: Thinking more about those barriers for prosperity when workforce requires more often for people to submit their applications through the internet.
1: Yep. Yep. So you have, you have kids who can't do homework because they don't have the internet, um, people who can't get jobs because either their access to the internet at home doesn't exist. And then again, they're creating a workaround. They're trying to get to a library. They're trying to get to a friend's house. The other thing that gives me great concern is that we have the 2020 census. The protocols are in the process of being developed right now, right now in 2018. It's very it heavily internet dependent. So for families who are planning out or metering their access to being in front of a desktop or in front of internet, I'm deeply concerned that we're going to have an epic undercounting and underreporting of our population when these communities can't submit the census. And what happens when we're undercounted? We lose funding sources, we lose agencies, schools close. So there are all sorts of bad things that happen from not having what in this day and age is probably, uh, to me, um, a, a tool like a public utility, such as the Internet, not be classified as such and not be accessible as such. Most certainly you're correct.
0: And by not having that presence, then the representation disappears. Yeah. We become invisible. Yes. It's like all the problems do not exist that's right and that's what the house sees or they don't see saying well this is all the data we have so we're going to go just for that and that's how it keeps perpetrating the problems that many communities are dealing with every day not being heard not being addressed not being understood and sometimes is when it comes to my mind that is why we need a change because it will be a great work the one that People that has been in, in those positions for so long, for so many years, have done until now. But there is a need for change. There is a need for refreshment. Yes. And to bring ideas that are connected with the reality of this times.
1: Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, so many things that you said just 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 hit home. So my mind just had a sort of a a clash of, of points to support you on that. Yesterday, my son came home. He's 20 years old and he's a student at one of the local universities. And he says to me, mom, one of my friends is a DACA recipient. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, but uh, he can't do his paperwork. His, you know, He's he's he my son starts mumbling about his friend's paperwork can't be done. And I said, Well, do you understand that the president stopped DACA? Like, do you understand why your friend is stuck? So he might he my son was making the point that he couldn't that his friend could not work this summer because he could not get his paperwork. Mm-hmm. And I said to my son, "Oh, this is a teaching moment. Mm-hmm. Do you see how policy works? Now, these are not kids just on TV or on hashtags, this is your friend who you now bear witness to is now blocked from being able to get a job because his paperwork is not being processed because of the president's decision unilaterally to stop a program that President Obama started. So we had a great conversation about policy and how policy is developed and how DACA was started by President Obama based on his own direction to his administrative agencies and how President Trump stopped it based on his direction to his administrative agencies and how Congress actually can take control of getting a Clean Dream Act so that we're not putting people in the middle Of um, political ebbs and flows. But it was interesting because I felt like I could literally see the light bulb on my son's, over my son's head about, oh shoot, this is real. And this is what my mom is fighting for. So when I can tell you a story like that, and I can tell you that this is a real conversation happening in my household, imagine what it looks like for me to go and lead with policy that's based on knowing what people are ex- experiencing every day and the compassion that my son had for his friend. Because here they are trying to figure out what they're going to do for the summer, and his friend says, I'm, I can't work. Like, that's real. So when we talk about needing a change, and what I hear also in your statement is that it's an opportunity to restore hope. Because the other thing that people have been is apathetic where you start to feel like, I'm just struggling to get by. I just want to make sure my kids are clean and get to school on time. And then I keep my job. Don't ask me to vote in a primary. Don't ask me to care about going to anybody's website. And I understand even that because the pressures that we're under sometimes just surviving (laughs) is all that we're able to do. So, but I'm hoping that over the next couple of months, and with a great team of volunteers and supporters, we can get to our communities, particularly our communities of color, and help to restore hope, help to make sure that people are registered to vote, which is very important that they're registered to vote, and that they break through, again, institutional barriers designed to box them out from voting on September 4th. And when I can sit with people and say, I know, That for a lot of us, that's the first day of school for kids. And I had a mom say to me the other day, what I'm always doing is my son always gets lost on his bus route and I spend the whole night looking for my son. So is she going to care to try and get to her precinct to vote? Probably not. She's going to be worried about finding her child. I don't think for one minute that it was not on purpose that this election was dated and scheduled for the day after holiday. Where are our college students? For the ones who are going away to college, they'll be gone, so they have to remember to do absentee voting. What about our high schoolers? For the first day of school, maybe they're trying out for a team. Are they going to, the ones who are 18, be able to get to to vote? Is that a priority? Probably not. So we, we have such an undertaking that we're engaging in, and part of that means that we have to Give people the information they need and inspire them in their hearts to prioritize voting and submit absentee ballots where they're not going to be present. That's a lot of work. That's more than just saying, hey, vote for Tahira for Congress. That's like having a cultural sea change, a cultural sea change needs to happen. But when it happens, we win. So we don't have a choice. We have a lot of work to do.
0: (laughs) Voting Possibly one of the most important rights yes. for United States citizens. And it's sad to see how many times this right is just ignored. Yeah. And yeah, it's a systemic strategy. I have no doubt of that as well. And that's why it is important that we bring back this awareness and yeah. let people know and understand why voting is so important. Right. Why is the very foundation of this country and... It's important to be involved, because we all are part of the realities that we are living today in the United States.
1: Yes, yes, indeed. And that's why the work that you do, the mentoring with youth that you do is so important, because you can start to teach them. And again, a, from a cultural perspective, and I use the word culture just meaning not like, I grew up in this type of household culture, but I mean from an attitudes about what who you are as a citizen type of culture. Kids need to be exposed to it so that it becomes taboo for them not to vote, not special when they do vote. And that uh, has to be taught and modeled because civics is removed from our public school discourse and conversation. And knowing when the primary is, is not always intuitive. It's not something that people pay attention to. We're acutely aware, hyper aware of these dates because of the nature of the work we do. The typical people are not in our district. We have a 17% voter turnout in this sort of an election. 17% is abysmal. It's abysmal. In some of our municipal elections, it's less than 10% voter turnout. So we have to teach children that this is their right and that it's important and why it matters. Another real-life moment, I was uh, I attended Elms College. I had um, one child at that time. I was like 20 years old or something. And I got like honor roll, uh, dean's list. So I, maybe my GPA was like 3.5 my first year. And I got a letter in my financial aid package. So I had qualified for the highest level of financial aid because of my income being low and the fact that that we had had a child. And it said, well, because you have scored 3.0 in your GPA, you now are eligible for this extra $500. So you get an extra $500 in your financial aid. And this was in 1998. I hope that that incentive is still available whenever I was in school. 94 when I started. It's still available now. But I reflect upon that and said, you know what? We had a state legislature who valued the fact that poor students should get and probably need that extra $500. Because what did I do? I only used it to help offset student loans or my books. But what a difference it made. And so who you elect to represent you controls whether or not they value that for someone like me. And just like the story I told about my son, when I lead with stories around real life impact, around those little policies, then we know that we're leading with things that really matter in people's lives.
0: Any last remarks that you would like to do? Any message for, for the public listening?
1: Yeah. So I'm so grateful for this opportunity to be able to speak with you about the campaign. I, I love speaking about it because I, f- I already feel like I'm a representative for our district. I already feel that way. I already feel that I have this deep responsibility to take care of the people in our communities. And... I'm looking forward to a successful September 4th election and ultimately a, a successful general election, and to bringing this community with me in my heart to DC as I advocate for policies that not that don't just matter to our communities, but that matter to our country. And I'm so um, touched by the opportunity that I've been given and the response that we've been given. And I'm going to work very hard, and I invite others to join me to work very hard to make this a reality. So I thank everyone and Tahira for Congress, and it's spelled T-A-H-I-R-A-H-F-O-R-Congress.com and across all social media platforms.
0: (laughs) It is, to me, really meaningful to have you here, not only because you are running for Congress, But because all the work that you have been doing for so long, I remember when I met you uh, during uh, conversations about race and about uh, inequity and how to figure out ways to improve this. And I was so impacted by your presence, by your ideas, by your energy and to see that this is something that is your life. Thank you. I feel so connected to that mission is essentially this idea that regardless our apparent differences, we are all the same. We are all connected.
1: This is true. Well, thank you for that. That means so much to me. Um, And you see, I get, oh, I can get overwhelmed when I just think about the opportunity to deliver victory in so many ways to people who deserve it. We deserve it. We deserve our entire community, all 750,000 of us deserve victory, deserve a representative who loves their community. Why have we been okay not having that?
0: This is Tahira Amatul-Wadud, candidate for the Congress on the 1st District of Massachusetts. Tahira, thank you so much. Oh,
1: you're welcome so much. Thanks for having me was a great start to my to my week.
0: <laughs> right after having the long weekend of Memorial Day, we are resuming activities in this beautiful and powerful way and also um, my admiration for your work as as a lawyer, as a woman, a leader, an inspiration for the youth in our communities.
1: Thank you, I appreciate it. And again, that means so much to me, for me to hear coming you, from you, and I have the same mutual admiration for you and the work that you're doing because you're shaping our youth to take control of the future. So we're on the same mission and just delivering it in a different way, but we're gonna get there. We are going to get there, I promise you, my friend.
0: Thank you so much, Tahira. You're welcome. And this is our conversation today with Tahira Amatu Waduth in Radio Plasma. Remember, all the information about Tahira's campaign is also available on the posting of this story at radioplasma.com. This session has been produced and recorded at the Plasma Media Lab here in the Gandhara Youth Development Center in Holyoke, Mass. I'm your producer and host, Johan Rashi Vega. Thank you for listening.